Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Free the Geek FM. In this episode, I am, as always, excited to have yet another fireside chat with yet another wonderful guest. This time, my guest is Troy Hunt, Australian Microsoft MVP for security, Pluralsight author, and all-around good fella. See you in a second. So welcome to the show. I'm excited. I am excited. I am excited. Okay, I'm always excited. It's my line. And then I say that a lot of time too. But hey, it's good to be honest. So this week, sorry, this time, I'm excited, as I as I said in the intro, to have as my guest this time around, Troy Hunt. Now, I'll flesh out a little bit more than what I said in the very rapid intro. Troy is an Australian Microsoft Most Valuable Professional for Developer Security, or MVP. He is a plural site author. He's the creator of a fantastically interesting site called Have I Been Pwned. I'll have all the links to these in the show notes. And you can find more about him at troyhunt.com. Here's a little excerpt from Troy's site. He says, You'll often find me speaking at technology events around the world, usually on security, and usually showing people just how easy it is to break software on the web today. Now, you might think from from that intro that I'm going to be having some in-depth conversation on security. So apologies up front for the fact that that's not what's happening. The reason that um, I got Troy in the show and he was kind enough to be on the show is that I've tried someone I've watched for the last couple of years or watched or, or read his stuff and watched the videos that he posts from the, from the talks that he gives. And he's someone who quite honestly is someone who's inspired me because I'm also a budding public speaker. I've also been blogging for a couple of years, uh, not to the same degree of success as Troy. What's more a lot of people I know have recommended Troy's work primarily in the public speaking space. So like anything, when you want to get better at it, go find the people that do it really well, or at least definitely uh, are one or, or several legs up on yourself. So it's for those reasons that I wanted to have a chat to him. It's about you know what it takes to build a brand in, in the sense of dedication and the time investment. And, you know, the ins and outs, the honest feedback that people generally don't tell you when you're saying, just, just write it, just create it and it'll happen. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got a hell of a lot of luck, I want to get a Watson account from someone who has been doing it for quite a considerable amount of time consistently, who has been putting in the hard yards. So you get a real honest account. What's and all, you know, you know, the good, but you also know the bad and, and the tough stuff. So I want to say around about three minutes in, to when when Troy to our fireside chat, I want to draw your attention to the fact that Troy says having a visible profile online will do good for things for you later. I think it's really something to keep an ear out for, and to really think about, and then allow to gestate on, perhaps after the interview. And then there's three other points that he mentions throughout the interview, which I think are real gems, definitely worth keeping an ear out for, and they're these that it takes time to grow something of worth, something of value, that different things, different steps, different processes work for different people and in different ways for different people. And thirdly, and perhaps perhaps really the most important question, which is what is your metric? What are 
your metrics for success. What are you out to achieve so that when you've hit it, assuming you do hit it, or you come close or not, that you'll know it. You know, you can you can know how well you're doing and you're not just blindly doing something week in, week out. So definitely keep an ear out for those four key things in the interview. But anyway, before I jump into that, um, this week I won't be chatting much. This is pretty much about all I'm going to do. And the reason for that is, is firstly that the interview with Troy goes for about 45 minutes. The usual runtime of the show has been about an hour, about, you know, somewhere it fluctuates between 45 minutes and an hour. So I want to, you know, hand over to the entire, you know, pretty much hand over the entire time to the interview. And the large reason for that is that I've got some good feedback from, from Henning and some other people that previous in the, in the previous two episodes where I cut up the interview with Gary, that it really broke continuity. And especially that it was broken up over a two-week period. So you had to wait quite some time before you could hear the second part. So when you hear the second part, you're like, well, I've kind of lost context from the first part. So that's something I, I don't want to repeat this time. So I'm not going to say much more, give most of the episode over to the interview. But I will say that hopefully you're hearing a better, richer, deeper vocal quality this time. Hopefully just in short, the audio quality has improved. And the reason for that is that I've been progressing through building a course for several companies, but one of them it, but one of them is the lovely Tuts Plus or Envato, depending on which way you've heard the name. And they've been quite highly critical of the audio quality that I've been able to produce with the USB Blue Yeti microphone that I've been using for quite some time. Honestly, I've never quite been totally happy with it. Not that it's bad quality, but there was always just a certain amount of echo or reverb that, at least in my own skills, I couldn't quite get rid of. So going through sound tests backwards and forwards, they've always said, yeah, look, it's getting better, but it's not quite there. And to be honest, we, we don't like the Blue Yeti ourselves. So I tried, I tried, I tried. I, I put in acoustic treatments. I rearranged the studio here. It, just, it never quite came to pass. So anyway, I bit the bullet and I have bought an MXL 990 XLR dynamic microphone. Now that's a bit of a tongue twister. But in short, what I believe I found is a microphone that has a richer vocal note is easier to, to have better quality of sound. And what I mean by that is not only the deeper vocal note, but to remove background noises and so on. Um, and all around should have a better experience. I'll skip the long and the short story, but I'll say that for under 200 euros, and that includes delivery, I have the mic, I have a wind filter, pop filter, the XLR cable, and a fantastic little Focusrite Scarlet Solo Mixer. Now, I, once again, I, I'm still coming to learn all the ins and outs of this stuff, but the reason why I picked that one was partly the price and partly simplicity. It's little, you can take it everywhere, plus there's not much to it. I've seen all these other mixes, and personally, there was a lot of knobs and controls and buttons you had to work with. And then once, especially as I have a MacBook Pro, once you've got the mixer, then you need another box, which you had to feed the mixer into after you fit the cable into the mixer. And that second box then went into your computer, and the costs just kind of were adding up and adding up by sheer chance. And I'll have the link to the video that I saw it in. I found the Focusrite Solo. And it's an amazing little box, doesn't cost a lot, it's an amazing mixer. All you really have to do is plug the microphone in and then USB to the computer 
adjust again, you're ready to go. So if anybody is thinking of improving their audio quality, and I've been talking to some people who have mentioned their setups, then definitely consider the Focusrite Scarlett Solo Mixer if you're going to go with an XLR mic, and the MXL 990 Dynamic XLR Microphone. Sorry, that's a tongue twister and a half. I'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes as always. Anyway, without further ado, here is my fireside chat with Troy Hunt. I do hope you'll enjoy. It has so much value in it. It is amazing. He's a very articulate person. He's a very knowledgeable person. It's over to Troy, and I'll see you after the fireside chat. It's a good question. It's in part by accident and in part by design, and I'd love to say it was all sort of forethought and well-planned, but uh, inevitably it, mm-hmm. it never quite goes that way. So it, interestingly for me, and, and I remember because we're coming right up on six years, it was late September because it was just before my son was born, which was a really odd time to choose to, to sort of start forging out on a new sort of path, if you like. But mm-hmm. uh, at the time, I had been in my role uh, at Pfizer at the time for about eight years. And I had sort of gone through this thing that people go through in careers, which is when you start getting good at something, uh, the, the, the plan is, the corporate plan is, you stop doing that and you do something else <laughs> that is considered to be a higher <laughs> level. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost, uh, have you heard of the Peter Principle? No, I can't say I have. All right, so so this is a good one, and people will will this will resonate with them. So the Peter principle is that you you rise through levels of competence in an organisation until you reach a level of incompetence, and that is where uh, you yes. then stop. Now, uh-huh. I don't think it was that I reached a level of incompetence. I, I hope it wasn't that, but it was <laughs> that you you are expected to keep rising through levels in order for your career to progress. So particularly mm-hmm. for us as technical people, it's very hard to say, I'm a really good technical person and I'm going to keep doing hands-on technical things and still get pay rises and gain seniority and all the other sort of traditional measures of success we have. So mm-hmm. when I found that that I was starting to sort of go down that path and I was less hands-on and I was uh, not as close to the actual technology anymore... I was sort of feeling this uh, this itch, if you like, that I, that I needed to scratch. And that's when I started blogging. And mm-hmm. I would use that as a way of getting hands back on uh, to technology. And I would also use it as a way of, I, I don't want to say venting, <laughs> but it was almost a release sometimes. There is something at work that is just driving me nuts. I'm going to go home and write my opinion of this in a blog. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, driving me nuts about what the organisation was doing. Sometimes it was technology I was dealing with or practices with vendors I was working with, uh, and that was a way of, of release. And really it, it just started to roll from there. But th- that's sort of the organic part of it. The, the bit that was by design, and when I had my career change earlier this year, I went back and, and read my first blog post. And my first blog post was about why online identities are smart career moves. And the very first thing I ever wrote six years ago was Mm -hmm. that having discoverability online and having a profile and having this sort of independent record of the things that you do well and and your personality and your candor, 
will do good things for you later on, one way or another. And uh, paradoxically, five and a half years later, it, it was that sort of initial blog post and the things that then followed that gave me the choices I had, which were just absolutely fantastic. And I never could have seen that coming to that degree five and a half years earlier, but that's how things eventuated. Okay, so it was more, there was there was partial planning, but sort of more a bit of, it just it grew out of something that you sort of, started unintentionally as such yeah so look i mean i certainly had the view that uh online identities and independent profiles were valuable i didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily know when it was going to be valuable and in fact in the first blog post i said look i'm it's not that i'm looking to change my career right now but i never know uh when i will be and i i might never know when my employer wants me to change career as well. So mm-hmm. doing these things early because you can't just manufacture them overnight as well uh, is a pretty good idea. Okay. Um, thinking about that, do you, how long do you feel, like speaking of that brand and, and from when you first started, how long was it until you felt or you could sort of noticeably or quantifiably track that it seemed to gain a sense of traction, that it seemed to be starting to showing the early signs of, of giving you more opportunities outside of what you, you had previously? I, I think there's sort of levels. So probably the first level that was of significance was getting the Microsoft MVP award, and that was mm-hmm. about four and a half years ago. So I, I guess that sort of took uh, maybe 18 months before I got that after blogging, and that was just entirely out of the blue, entirely unexpected. Uh, so that was kind of independent recognition. And at the time, it wasn't necessarily clear how that would directly benefit me, and it was only uh, as time went by where that sort of became some independent assurance of, of who I was and that, that sort of carries with it some, some credibility. I'd say it was, it was probably only two years ago, which would be four years after I started, that I, I started to go, hey, this is, like, this is going somewhere, you know, like this is actually – going to change uh, some of the options that I have in life. And then it was it was almost sort of exponential from there. So, you know, if we think it sort of took four years to, to really see anything out of it, uh, a year after that, that the things I was doing were, were really starting to give me some serious choices, alternate career choices. And then fortunately, mm-hmm. by the time my job wound up with Pfizer, it was, it was to the point where I was saying, what the hell am I still doing here? <laughs> you know, like why am I <laughs> yeah. why am I not going and doing other things that not only do I love, but are just far more rewarding in every possible way. So it, it, it look, I would say in answer to your question, it took a good four years, but things started to move really, really quickly after that. Okay. So it was that initial it's sort of you had to sort of keep plugging away at it and and building it on your own, but then once you what laid that sense of foundation, it then started to build quite quickly from that point forward. Yeah, pretty much, and it it, it really is a foundation. And it look, I mean, there's no one right answer either. But it, uh, mm. I found for me that's about how long it took doing this on the side as part of you know, still having a pretty demanding, fairly high level corporate job as well. Mm. Um, so it took a lot of effort up front, but it was all laying foundation. There were so many connections and so many, you know, blog posts and then sort of getting exposure to other places. And it's, 
it, it's almost like just swinging the bat at every possible thing uh, until eventually some of it starts to pay off and it, it starts to steamroll. Okay, that's, in, that's interesting how you describe that because it's something I've pointed for myself because um, I blogged not as myself as such. I, I think I blogged for three years. Um, about It was sort of broadly tech and then it sort of became more and more focused but only recently say as myself. So you can clearly see this is me. And it's interesting that you say you sort of you know, swinging the bat at anything and seeing what sticks. I sort of found a similar experience and have been wondering lately, you know, is there some strategy, some sense of structure, some better, more organized process of, 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 of approaching this? Or is it really you just sort of keep trying different things and eventually you kind of figure out your own um, approach to the whole thing? So would you say... I guess now, after all that experience and, and uh, what the last two years of, of good success, would you say there's better things to do than others, or you really still have to be experimental? Would you suggest certain things to do more than others, or is Look, it really it's, it's just you kind of just have to explore? Yeah, it's it, it's definitely that in in terms of exploring. I think it's very hard to manufacture this, and. Indeed, someone else could go and do precisely what I've done and it wouldn't work for them and, and vice versa. I could follow other other sort of successful people's paths and it wouldn't resonate because it is such an individual thing and it's hmm. a lot to do with how you like to learn, how you like to communicate and express yourself, uh, tolerance to risk as well. Uh, so you know, a lot of people I, I speak to want to do things like – Fragments sake, write plural site courses, but look, I um, uh, uh, I'm worried about the impact on my work life, or uh, my wife won't let me stay up late, or you know there'll be one of these things. So mm. it, it is a very personal path for everyone, and by no means is my approach the the one true way. It's just what tended to work best for me. But it, it it's funny because I remember particularly, I'd say particularly in the six months leading up to. Um, when I left my my corporate job, I, I kept thinking about. Um, you ever see that movie Yes Man with Jim Carrey? Uh, I've seen snippets of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. Okay, so but so, I, I so think I've, oh wait a second, yeah, yep, yep. But so, so this con- is please continue. And, and for for anyone else listening who, who doesn't hasn't seen it, but the, the idea is is that he decides he's going to turn his life around, and what he's going to do is no matter what anybody asks him, he's just going to say yes. And they're the most ridiculous, outrageous things, but he has all of these amazing experiences and opportunities as a result. And I, I clearly remember uh, even when and where I was, when it was sort of dawning on me, it's like, I'm becoming the freaking yes man, <laughs> you know, where I'm just saying mm-hmm. yes to everything. And it is, it, it's like chewing off or, or, or biting off more than you can chew and then just chewing like crazy. But mm. that for me was something that I was happy dealing with, with sort of organized chaos. And mm-hmm. I could chew fast enough that I could I could stay on top of what I needed to, and it you know as a result it presented opportunities, and there were lots of things I did, and even today there's a lot of things I do where they just come to absolutely nothing, you know there's mm. blog posts there that I've spent hours on that I'll never finish. There's uh, people I've spent a long time talking to that will never come to any sort of uh, tangible realization. But mm. you do enough of those, and enough of them come off, and and it you know it becomes worthwhile. And I guess the trick now is just trying to decide which are the right ones to do. Okay, that's that's interesting. It's, um, 
I guess there's a, a lot in, was it like a lot of um, irons in your proverbial fire and so like which one is going to pan out? And it when you were, you were talking about it, it reminded me of, I don't know if this is kind of like a cliche statistic, but when people say that well, the seven times out of ten you miss, but the three times that you actually get can often, well, can be much more worthwhile than all the things that didn't work. But was it with, without the seven others, you wouldn't have gotten the three that worked kind of thing? Do you find I'm sure there's something a deg- like that? Yeah, there's yeah. definitely a degree of that. And uh, again, I, I guess this comes down to personalities as well, where mm. are you happy to have 70% of that effort lead to no direct tangible benefit uh, in order for, for you to have enough of those proverbial lines in the fire such that three out of ten do actually come to something? Yeah, I guess it's the question and something that I've been wondering about lately because I guess for a long time it was more of a, a sense of an experiment. It was uh, I didn't really know how to do it despite reading a lot from other people. And so I guess I didn't really attempt to track it, but I thought, okay, I've been at this for a couple of years now. I need to have some sense of metrics, some tangible way of of am I improving? Am I am I getting somewhere? Or is it is is it all like a hundred percent just nothingness, if you will? Um, and I hate these moments where I completely lose my train of thought. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I guess it depends on what your metric is as well, right? So when when you say mm-hmm. it all comes to nothing, so. Uh, for example, is it that you're sitting there churning out blog posts and you're going, man, why aren't I a millionaire yet? Like, what the hell's going on? Um, so, yeah, is your metric uh, monetary, monetary, or is your metric uh, something that that might be uh, scratching that itch and that, hey, I've felt good writing this? Is your metric that I've helped other people? And I think everyone has their own metrics, and inevitably, it's a blend, right? It's never mm. usually just this one thing, and everything else doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's a question of, of what actually gives you the return that you need in order to keep doing it. And I think that changes over time as well. So for me, originally the return was, look, I, I just want to enjoy doing this and and then I'm, I'm actually making a difference and helping people. And then when you mm-hmm. get to the point where it becomes a career, well, it's got to be monetary as well because I, I need to eat <laughs> and, and you know live somewhere and, and all the other things. Uh, mm. And and all going well. Also, that that monetary side of things may actually, you know, exceed all expectations as well. It is interesting you sort of talk about the, the monetary aspect because I was I was talking with different people recently, and I don't know if it's if it's a tech thing or it's the tech people that I, I talk to most often, but there always seems to be more often than not. There's still kind of reluctance when it comes to cash, when it comes to selling something. There seems to be no reluctance at all to, well, within reason, to getting out and saying, you know, this is what I know, this is what I've learned, or investing time to do something like um, a conference talk or a plural site cause, because it's the sense of give your all, because it's, it's something you love to do. But the, the second the money seems to enter the equation, it, it all seems to change. Even the tone of the conversation, there seems to be the sense of reluctance to maybe perhaps want to to monetize it. I'm not saying in all cases, but I just seem to notice that more often than not. I'm just wondering sort of how you felt about that when if when money first came into the equation and you said, Well, you know, you've invested I don't know, we'll say fifty or sixty hours perhaps in a course, just picking a number at, at random. 
and then saying, well, you know, I've, I've invested that time plus all the years and, and the funds that you've invested in your education so you could deliver said course. How did you sort of feel when money first came into the equation? Did you have any sense of reservation or or other kind of feelings? Well, it's it's a funny thing because money tends to be a bit of a taboo subject sometimes, and and that in itself is a bit of a cultural thing as well. And in, in certain areas, it's it's not such an issue, but, but you know, particularly in Western cultures, it, it tends to be something that you you sort of keep private and you don't talk about too much, and uh, you know, there are various reasons for that. Um, I guess my perspective is it it really depends on where you're coming from. So if you're working somewhere and you're being looked after and you're being paid your salary and you're going and doing your blogging and so on, then you're probably not too worried about the money side of it, not when you're doing things that are an independent passion anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Once you start to do things that that do actually uh, pose value to people, particularly ones of significant value, th- then it does get kind of interesting. Uh, one of the, the Things I find a little bit paradoxical about this in technology is that the reality of it is we work in one of the best paid industries out there. Uh, technology is a leader all over the world in terms of mm-hmm. the salaries that people are paid. So we as technology people are up there uh, right up the top in terms of, of the money we earn. Um, yet we seem to have uh, probably not not a great sort of financial savviness and a little bit of this propensity to see it as uh, as a taboo subject. For me, I think what worked really well is that by the time I started doing this and getting really involved in it, I'd I'd been working for for sort of over a decade. Um, my wife was uh, was a professional as well. We had lots of sort of independent income that didn't sort of stress us too much. So every time the subject of money came up. I'd be quite happy to talk figures that I was always happy to walk away from as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and inevitably that meant there were a lot of things I didn't do, but the things I did do uh, paid very well. And I'd be quite comfortable uh, saying to people, look, this is what I expect for, for a piece of work. Uh, and, and certainly there's a situation now. And there'll be a bunch of people that say, look, that, that doesn't give us the ROI that we need and they'll go and do something else, which is fine. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll say, look, un- unless you can meet the ROI that I need to invest the time, then it's not worth doing it. And I find that that once I approach it as just a very analytical, uh, factual uh, approach, and you know, we we don't have people sort of being nervous or cautious about showing their hand on on money, then then everything is actually is actually pretty good. Um, and, and in fact, quite frankly, I'm I'm often surprised at how much tolerance people do have for cost. And that there's probably various reasons um, behind that. But uh, mm. look, I, I think transparency in, in this regard works really, really well. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, hmm. Yeah, I maybe so. I sort of hadn't had quite the same experiences, but I, I appreciate what you what you're saying, and and at least on the sense of honesty that no one's sort of saying one thing but meaning another, and. Uh, with what a sense of sort of what's the, what's the word um, resentment that sort of may build if someone isn't necessarily being sort of quite open and honest but um, perhaps sort of circling back a bit from from the success you've gained so far if for example someone um, we'll, we'll say for argument's sake 
someone, you know, sort of had watched you for a while and said, you know, could you mentor me or, or give me sort of pointers? And they were perhaps just starting out maybe, you know, they had, uh, say, they were early on in, in a, a standard sort of corporate career. Would there be sort of certain things that you would say, you know, okay, if I was starting over, here's what, what I'd do or here's some definite things that I wouldn't do? Sort of what kind of things potentially, you know, would you advise them for or against? If they were looking to basically do sort of, you know, what what you've done, I, I think it it I think one of the really core things here, regardless of your career, is having a good sense of what your value is. And uh, uh, value is always a funny sort of term. And the way I look at it is that value is ultimately what someone is is willing to pay. Now, whether that be for a piece of real estate or whether that be for a person, uh, your value is what someone is willing to pay for it. And figuring out what that is is very, very tricky. Uh, it's probably much easier actually in real estate or other sort of commodities than what it is for, for an individual. But mm-hmm. it's really important to understand that. And if you're in a corporate position, it's important because that's a discussion that you want to be having. And you know, most of us who have played corporate roles or our own corporate roles will be familiar with sort of the annual reviews and the and the benchmarking or, or pigeonholing, as you may call it. Mm-hmm. In terms of what yep. someone should be earning, so I think understanding that is is really important because that's going to allow you to then make decisions around things like uh, if I'm very very clear of what my value is and that's not being realised, then maybe I need to be doing something else. Uh, if you go independent, then understanding what your value is is going to help you uh, pitch a price for something, a price for your services. Uh, and that is a – it's not an easy thing, but it is really, really important. And that will also help you in decisions about things like uh, how you invest and what you spend money on. So one of the things that I wrote recently after my departure, and uh, in fact it was funny because a lot of people uh, after I left Pfizer said, like, you actually had a real job? Like, how did you do all these blog posts and all these other things? Mm-hmm. And, and I actually thought that was kind of funny because I was like, Exactly how much do you think I get from blog ads? <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> it's um, it, this is not retirement money, right? Mm. So, so that was kind of curious. But what I wrote in that blog post is that one of the things that that I've done that that I think works really well is by having a sense of what I am worth and what my time is worth helps me a lot uh, in investing. And what I mean by that is investing in things like uh, how do I set my office up. So, you know, should I spend money to get uh, a really nice chair and a bunch of swish monitors? Uh, will I get a gain from that? Uh, you know, how much of my time will I get back by doing this? Mm. Um, you know, should we pay cleaners to come in to, to clean the place rather than me doing that or, or my wife doing that? You know, what sort of return will I get on that effort? And understanding my value then helps me make decisions about where I should invest in terms of uh, basically buying back my time so that I can be more productive. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's something that I, I think I definitely started to look at. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll admit for quite a period of time, it, it was very much there, were, there was no consideration to that. And then after a period, then after a while of that, you start to look at, okay, I spent all this time, but what exactly has been sort of, you know, what's been the result of that? And it was, it was, Maybe I was sort of too lost up in a, in a code mentality and not like a financial one, but 
it did after it started to bite and I thought okay well I do want to be more clinical you know if I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm giving this time away or time over or investing the time yeah then, then, then there has to be some kind of return on that and even I think just lately I was looking at I was getting some feedback on some some audio samples I'd submitted and um one company was great they said it was really fine and the other one said look it's 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 kind of mostly okay but there's some reverb and echo and and so I was then looking at okay what would be the cost of um of correcting that and on on one hand there was some simple sort of audio treatment stuff because this is an this is an attic kind of based room Mm. Um, and then the other was like, okay, what is, you know, like a whole, I think I priced up a whole audio kit. And on one hand, I think it was 50, 60 euros and a certain amount of my time to, to make some audio treatment. On the other was, I think in, in the range of about 700 euros. And so it, it actually sort of became really fun to consider on one hand, there's, there's a lower cost, but time and how much is my time worth and where could I be? You know, where could I spend that somewhere else and what is that, the cost on that? And then looking at, okay, if I buy all this equipment, that's fine. It may sound beautiful and so forth. But, you know, what um, sort of how many courses or how much work would it then take to get that money back as well? And it's been interesting to, to, to really consider, it. one, the joy of doing something and two, the okay, but then time has a cost and effort has a cost and so forth. So it's, it's definitely been interesting to, to think about that more and more critically. Yeah, and, uh, you know, this is a really great question for anyone listening as well. How much is your time worth? Um, is it 50 bucks? Is it 500 bucks? And, and while, we're, while we're sort of asking the hard life questions, how much is time with your family worth? <laughs> so ask mm. yourself this one. And people don't like actually putting a, a value on this, but we all do it, right, because we go to the office and we have mm. to get up early and, well, Okay, I don't have to get up early, but <laughs> most people have to get up early and look presentable. Um, I actually had my hair cut and I shaved for the first time in several weeks yesterday, so that was... Um, <laughs> but um, the reality of it is is that we have to make decisions uh, hmm. around things like our family. So I'm planning some travel at the moment. I'm going to London in, in uh, the start of next year to do some talks and some workshops, and there's going to be more opportunity than what I feel comfortable with spending away from my family. Mm. So the, the question then becomes like how much money do you have to be offered before you say, look, I'm not going to go back and spend an extra day or a week with my family. And, and that is a really hard thing because it, it, it doesn't sit well with people to put a cost on time with loved ones. But the reality of it is, is, is that we all do this in one way or another. And when it's a, whether it's a sort of nine to five, five day a week kind of thing, or whether it's being independent, mm -hmm. we have to do that. And I, I honestly think that asking yourself those hard questions and putting a figure on it. And for some people, it, it may be, look, that's it. I'm doing nine to five, Monday to Friday, and that's it. There's 40 hours where I'm going to be away from my family. And that is the absolute threshold. And my value on that is so high that I will not go over that. And that's absolutely mm -hmm. fine. Uh, and clearly for other people that it can be the other end of the extreme. But I think it's really curious to actually think about what number you would put on it. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And, and, and as you say, the, I guess maybe um, another question into that is that 
and, and my wife asked me once because I, I always said that I wanted to be to have to, to be f- sort of financially independent, to be well off. And she said, "How much is that?" Ooh, good question. And then working back from that, how okay, we'll, we'll set a figure and we'll, we'll I'll, I'll pick a figure <laughs> of say a classic one of a million euros net worth. And then she said, "Okay, well, there's your figure." But then what to, what to take to get to that point? And then as leading into what you said, then that trade-off of, okay, sure, you, you reached that, but what did it cost you to get there? And if you said to yourself, I want to have this uh, level of net worth so I can have a lovely time with my family, but if in getting it you really have no time, then it's kind of pointless. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I think the, the only real answer to how much is enough is more than what I have. <laughs> that's... <laughs> that's that tends to be what it boils down to. And, and if mm. you look at really successful people and you go, um, so Richard Branson, how exactly how much is enough? Well, you know, honestly, like, I mean, let's say for argument's sake, once you get to 100 million bucks, how much difference does another 100 million bucks make? You yeah. know, like, how, all right, maybe that just determines the size of your yacht or your jet and you just have a whole mm. different set of problems. But I, mm. I guess the point is on, on more realistic terms, is that very often that you know enough is going to be something more than what you have now because everyone is trying to to, to move forward in life, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's it it's also hard too because people sent, tend to sit. I'll rephrase it. People will will have their objectives of of what they would like to achieve, and then goalposts move. So whether that be inflation and CPI and real estate costs and all the rest of it, or whether it be that they've now sort of become a little bit more comfortable with their new level of success and there is now another level on top of that, uh, you know, that, that is also very curious. And uh, I think it's, it, it's really hard to sort of put a number on it because the other thing is what happens when you get there? You know, do you stop? Mm. Like do you get to a million euros in the bank and then go, well, that's it, I'm done, <laughs> you know? Because if, yeah. if that's the case, like how passionate were you really about the thing in the first place? Yeah. Uh, and how much under duress were you in order to meet that million euros? Mm, it's, it's, it's a good question. And I think or the, the thread I feel coming through all this is not necessarily about sort of the, the what's like I, I, I blog once a week, I, I'll speak at X conferences a year. It's more much more critical to define what exactly are you setting out to achieve and not um, having in sort of abstract terms and trying to be so specific and, and then look at the motivation for, I enjoy doing this, but do I really want to do it? If I do want to do it, you know, why am I doing it? What are the particular things out of it that I really want to to sort of see realized and, and what's my end goal in this? So that I, I guess when you are doing the things and maybe you're you're weighing up that question of, okay, it's X amount of, of dollars or euros or, or whatever versus time, say, with my family or, or or just sort of downtime, then you can make a more informed decision. You can make a better decision and know because why you've made it and feel comfortable with that. There's another interesting angle to this, and it's, it's kind of timely. So last week in the news they had uh, Notch, the, the guy who created Minecraft, and he sold uh-huh. Minecraft to, to Microsoft for two point something billion, you know, which is is, is just silly money. Mm-hmm. And effectively, what the the stories were saying, um, I don't know if he'd gone on a bit of a bender and he was just being really candid. Uh, but the, the way it was presented is that effectively he sent out a bunch of tweets saying he was he was miserable, he was isolated, 
Uh, so I, I think he just bought a place for like 70 million bucks. He'd outbid Beyonce or, or something crazy <laughs> like that. And he, yeah. he effectively had everything. And, and the guy had made it. And, and what he was saying in his series of tweets is like, what, what am I actually striving for? You know, like I've, I've got it all. What am I looking for next? And mm. I, I think there's a, there's a really interesting angle there, which, which sounds like one of these first world problems, but is, you know, is something that can be hard to get to grips with is what do you do when you actually reach your goals? You know, mm. when you have that thing, do you just set new goals and you go on to the next thing? Or is it a bit anticlimactic? We've probably all wanted something in the past and then bought it and then gone, oh, yeah, now I've got that thing. <laughs> you know, what happens next? <laughs> mm. So there's a... There is a nice problem, but but certainly a problem that's very serious for some people. All the same, at the other end of the journey as well. Yeah, it was it was something that um, I, I think I read an interview with Mark Shuttleworth, the the um, Ubuntu founder, uh, some years ago. And I mean, sort of good fortune to him. I uh, you know had um, the story I understand of him was that you know he worked incredibly hard, but he had a clear vision for for um, seeing online shopping as being a very real thing in in the days before or the very very early days when it online shopping wasn't even a thing it was a, it was a possible thing and he was at university at the time but he said you know he, he said he believed it was going to happen and he went after it with all he was worth good fortune to him he he sold his company to 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 uh, Verisign I think some years later and made quite an, an, an enormous amount of money and he said, here he was, I think, mid-20s, mid to later 20s, saying, I've effectively made it. What the hell do I do now? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm young. I have a lot of money, financial success. It's kind of, I guess, almost like, like the mathematician who kind of does their best work early in life. Mm -hmm. You know, what do I do now? And, but he said it was interesting for a period of time that he kind of had to look for challenges, I, if I quote him correctly. But it took time to then say, okay, what what do I do from here on in and to sort of then reassess and reprioritize? Well, maybe the other way of looking at it as well is is what did Elon Musk do? It's, it's like he sold PayPal for a gazillion dollars and then went, all right, well, maybe we'll build some electric cars uh, and now maybe we'll build rockets. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> there is always a stretch goal for those yeah. that, are, that are driven enough to, to achieve it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that's, that is certainly um, – Again, it's. I, I want to say it's a nice problem to have, but I, I think that 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 possibly overlooks the fact that for some people, like Notch, it, it it could actually be a really really difficult time of life. I'm sure he's not sleeping well because of it. Hmm. Um, so there's that, but maybe the the sort of middle ground here as well is. I think it's really important for people as they they sort of go through and kick these goals, whether they be little things that they do in terms of monetary value or, or sort of global significance or whether they be really big life goals to sort of take the time out to, to celebrate that and really enjoy it as well. And particularly as success comes, being able to you know, treat yourself to some of the things you wanted or, or even just, just you know, have a bottle of champagne with your wife sometimes uh, is really important to, to sort of reflect on, on what you have done. Yeah, I, I think it's sometimes that you're too busy um, in, in this conquest or this, this sense of achievement conquest that you can kind of forget the things that you have done, the things that have gone well. And you're always kind of looking to the next thing and not appreciating, even if for just a moment or an afternoon, what you've, what you've achieved, you know, thus far. 
And I think in some ways that's kind of sad. Yeah, it, it is. And I guess it's human nature as well. You're always sort of, mm. you know, looking for the next big thing. But look, I mean, taking time out to enjoy it is is really important. So that the way I would, would often explain it to my five-year-old, because he'd say, you know, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you back in the study again? Mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, we, we do this so that we can do things like, like just go skiing whenever we want to. Um, and so that's what we do, and, and we've we've just come back from just having a week of all right. We're just going to go skiing, and it's it's like the middle of the week, and I don't care <laughs> because I don't have to go to an office, and uh, and you're coming out of school because skiing. Um, so, you know, being able yeah. to do that and and contextualize the reward, and uh, of course, you can only do that when you're at the point where where it actually makes sense to do so, but. Being able to sort of look back on that and, and celebrate it a little bit, I, I think, is really, really important as well. Okay. Um, I guess we're coming up to an hour, so I don't want to, you know, sort of take loads and loads of your time. Um, the one thing I guess I sort of would really like to to, to have a, a bit of yarn about, sort of before we um, bring things to a close, is on the point of public speaking, because partly it's, it's a personal thing because it's something I'm sort of just getting into. I was fortunate enough to be accepted to two, to give two talks in Washington in November. But this is a, a first-time thing for, I don't know, someone like myself or, or others. Is there, and besides what you've written on, on your blog, are there sort of certain things about public speaking that you feel make it, um, make, make the journey of it much more successful or make it much more meaningful to the listener? Do, how do you... F- what would you say as a, as a person sort of getting into public speaking as the thing that they should really focus on to sort of guide them in how they how they give a talk, how they prepare a talk, you know, the, the, the key things to think about? You mean other than picturing everybody naked? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, some, <laughs> some people just don't look, uh, you know, some people look bad naked. Well, yeah, we're probably going down a, 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 a direction we don't want to go <laughs> right now, but... Um, <laughs> So what I guess one thing is I find that I keep refining what I do um, and what I try and do, and in fact I'm doing this just at the moment, is as I prepare for a talk, I keep looking back on things I've done before. Mm-hmm. So I'm heading off to the US on the weekend to do a couple of keynotes and a couple of other talks and I've I've got all of my old ones uh, saved on my Plex Media server. I've got it synced to my iPad, and I'll sort of sit there and watch back over what I've done before, and I'll go, yeah, what do I think resonated well? What were people laughing at versus getting no reaction from? And I'll just keep tuning that and tuning it and tuning it. And, and I'll do the same talk maybe half a dozen different times because you can you can sort of do that with, with different audiences. Mm-hmm. But I find that's really important. One of the things that... In fact, I was talking to a friend today and, and we were talking about speaking. And I said one of the things that's sort of really, uh, I guess, fallen into place for me in the last few months uh, as I've been traveling a lot more and doing a lot more talks is I, I find I tend to be a lot more casual about it. And mm-hmm. that's not to say that it's not very structured. I rehearse all my talks over and over again. I time it sort of down to the nearest minute. Um, I'm, you know, maybe even a bit over the top with it. But I, I find that during the talks I'm more able to, to go off on a tangent to talk about something related that appears ad hoc or spur of the moment or conversational in a way that, that feels relaxed and natural and people seem to be able to relate with more. Uh, so I, I think 
trying to to sort of let that personality come through and and overcome the, the need for everything to be a, a sort of perfectly robotic delivery is really important. Okay, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I noticed that in uh, there was there was a talk you linked to in uh, would have been Norway or somewhere just recently. Um, and at the start of the talk, you played the video on was it being Australian? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so someone didn't like that either. They thought it was very racist. Um, and I, I'm not sure really? who it was racist to. I'm not sure if it was racist to me as the Australian or, and if that's okay uh -huh. uh, or if it was racist to the people in the video because it was it was like Indian outsourcing of how to mm. talk Australians. Um, look, I mean, it, it polarised one guy who wasn't actually there anyway, so frankly I don't care too much about that. And, and there's something as well, actually acknowledging that not everybody is going to like what you do and that that's quite mm. okay and you can still be friends and get over it. But um, that worked really well for a number of reasons. Um, one of the things I, I learned, I, I did a, a number of sort of public speaking training things where, where I was trained. Uh, and in fact, Microsoft provided this support uh, before some of the TechEd events. And one of the things that the, the trainer said is, what often happens before a talk is that everything is silent, there is something static on the screen, and everybody files in in silence, and then the speaker comes up, and it's sort of, you know, it, it begins from there. And it's a very kind of, I don't know, like stodgy kind of scripted process that, that feels mm -hmm. very formal. Yeah. So what I decided to do with that talk uh, and that was the, the highest rating talk of the show as well, is five minutes before the talk was scheduled to start, uh, I began playing this video. And the, look, the video is funny. Most people thought it was funny, except for that one guy. Um, and as people were filing into the room, they got engaged with what was on the screen. People started laughing. And by the time we actually got to sort of zero hour where the whole thing was meant to start, uh -huh. everyone was happy and they were relaxed. And when I came on the stage, I could be sort of fun and happy and, and that was kind of, you know, that would have taken another five or ten minutes of presentation to try and get everybody warmed up. So I thought that actually worked really well, but you, you do have to be a bit careful with it as well because you don't want to polarise people by humour that doesn't resonate or, or anything mm. like that. Okay. Yeah, I, I looked at it and at first I sort of I, I couldn't get the linkage, but then I sort of looked at it again and, and sort of appreciated a sense of humor in it. Um, one last question is, and, and maybe it's just like a tech thing that I have in the back of my head, but assuming that, okay, you've, you've prepared your talk, you've, you've really thought about it, um, planned it out and so forth, and you've gone over it so you're comfortable with how it should run and so forth. And we'll, and we'll assume the mechanics of the talk went fine. And you have, uh, say, 10 minutes for questions, and there's some kind of hairball question that you just, uh, whether it's on the tip of your tongue or you just don't know. Um, and, you know, the proverbial sort of spotlight's on you and the audience, there's you know, many more of the audience than there is of you. And you're there and you're sort of like, I just don't know how to answer this question. How, how would you approach that situation? Yeah, and, and you start feeling really hot and flustered <laughs> and uncomfortable. I, so I, I think, first of all, is, is one of the things is that definitely over time that just becomes less of an issue, either mm -hmm. because you, you know the answer or because you're more comfortable saying that you don't know the answer. Um, and I think that that is actually quite okay. In fact, I know that's quite okay to say, look, I'm not sure. And a good way of handling that is to say, uh, look, I, I don't have the answer with me at the moment. 
uh, if you want to ping me on any of these contact details that are up on the screen at the moment, which they usually are at the end of a talk, mm-hmm. then I'll get you the answer. Uh, and that sort of deflects things very quickly. And uh, I, I th- honestly, it is quite okay to say you don't know. It, it is not that you have to be up there knowing 100% of the things that people are going to ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can wing it to a degree. Yeah, I sort of wondered about it. I, and I've been talking about this with some others as, as part of the you know, preparation for the first talks. And and just the one thing I had was from someone who said, whatever you do, don't blag. Just don't sort of uh, try to fake an answer as though you're kind of like making one up when you definitely know you don't know. He said, yeah, you, you, you can better make it worse. to <laughs> Yeah, he said, better to just say, look, as you said, look, just you know, get, you know, tweet me or whatever, and I'll find the answer for you. Then, kind of stumble and kind of pretend like you're this, you know, be it all expert. Yeah, look, I think that makes a lot of sense, and it the risk you have is that if you if you try and stumble your way through it, it it makes you look worse than if you were to just to say, look, I don't have the answer. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, whether it's speaking or whether it's in your professional lives, I think it. It takes time and it, it takes, for want of a better word, maturity before you get to the point where you're actually comfortable going, well, look, I, I don't know this. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll find it out or I, I think I can contact someone. But it's quite okay just to say I don't know. Okay. Well, I like that because that, that gives me a good sense of confidence anyway. Um, Excellent. <laughs> and one thing, I guess, before we wind up, as I, as I ask everybody, is, is there something that you want to promote, what's coming up? Um, you know, sort of whether it be a book or, as you said earlier, there's um, keynotes that you're giving. Is there something that you want to plug? Okay, so stuff I have coming up. Uh, so if you are – well, when, actually, when does this podcast go out? This will be oh, – I don't have a specific scheduled date at this stage, but it'll be one, two, two, four, about a month, five weeks from now. Okay, so by the time you listen to this, <laughs> I would have been speaking in Monterey in California and San Francisco. Uh, in uh, late October, I'm speaking at Dev Intersections in Vegas, if anyone wants to come along to there. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably the big one that would actually work for people is in January, I'll be at NDC in London and I'll be doing a bunch of talks there. I'll be doing a workshop for NDC. And uh, I, I guess the plug to give there as well as I'm doing private workshops as well. So if you work mm-hmm. for an organization uh, in London or in Europe and you want me in there for a couple of days to teach people how to break their security things and then how to stop other people breaking them, uh, then get in touch at Troy. So Hunt.com. what did you think of the fireside chat with Troy? I hope you'll agree. He is indeed very articulate. And that there was so much information packed in there, so much information which I think you, you – I don't think you really get it in in a lot of posts these days. You know, there's a lot of touchy-feely, a lot of kind of intangible content encouraging you to do things, but not always stuff that really gets into the nitty-gritty and tells you how it is day in, day out. Anyway, I'll just wind up by saying thank you very much once again for being part of the show, for being part of the community. This is a podcast I love to produce. It is a labor of love. And so given that, I hope that you'll let me know how it's going, whether the audio quality has improved in this episode, what you thought of the interview with Troy. So if you have time, I would really encourage you to give me uh, a great rating and a review on iTunes. Alternatively, leave a comment in the show notes for today, which is freethegeek.com forward slash episodes forward slash episode seven. Any feedback 
ideally constructive, all helps in making the show better and better each time. Anyway, I'll see you next time in two weeks' time for my interview with Erica Heidi. Chat to you then. <laughs>